0: My shepherd I lack nothing he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he refreshes my soul he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake even though I walk through the darkest valley I will fear no evil for you are with me Well, it's so good to see you guys this weekend. This is the second week of our series that we're calling Psalm 23. And I'll be honest, I don't think that this series could have better timing. And it's because unless you've been living in a cave somewhere, you know that we live in a world right now where every time you turn on the news, every time you read the news, every time you pick up a newspaper, all of a sudden you see that we're living in a world of chaos and uncertainty. So what a great time to dig into Psalm 23 and be reminded that we have the opportunity to follow a good shepherd who can bring peace and security no matter how much chaos, no matter how much uncertainty is unfolding in our world. By the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but it's pretty simple. There's a reason that there's so much chaos and so much uncertainty in our culture. I mean, you study any civilization, you study any culture, and you will discover that whenever, whenever absolutes decrease... Chaos is always going to increase. In other words, there's, whenever we begin to blur the lines of what is right and wrong, there's chaos in our culture. And because now all of a sudden, what used to be so clear, where there used to be boundaries, where there used to be a line, now everybody's not really sure what's right, what's wrong. Am I inside the line? Am I outside the line? Is there even a line anymore? And as a result, Everyone just decides, hey, I need to do what feels right, what seems right, what would be the right thing for me to do in this situation. And it results in everybody doing their own thing, and there's a lot of chaos. I'll give you a great example, the nation of Israel. You ever studied the history of the nation of Israel? I mean, good gracious, they spent 430 years as slaves in Egypt. That's a long time to be a slave. No freedom, no choices, no free will. They were slaves. Finally, Moses leads the Exodus, but even then they blow it and they end up spending 40 more years wandering around the desert. Not a lot of freedom, not a lot of things to enjoy in that scenario, but they finally get to the promised land. And remember, when they got to the promised land, they ran the enemies out of the promised land, right? And they got to move into their houses. So think about it. They're living in houses that they didn't have to build. They get to eat from gardens. They didn't have to plant. They get to to drink wine from vineyards. They didn't have to cultivate. I mean, life is good. And yes, in the desert, what did God give them? The Ten Commandments. God gave them absolutes. But then they decided once they got into the Promised Land, they didn't need to leave, live by these absolutes. In fact, this is a commentary when you get to the very end of Judges. There's a commentary about cult- the culture of the nation of Israel at that time. And this is what it says in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did. As they saw fit. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like our culture? Everybody just doing what seems right to them, what, what seems to fit for them? I like what the New American Standard says. It says, in those days Israel had no king. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. He did what he considered to be right, what sensed to be right. And just so you know, that's called anarchy. That's anarchy. But that's what happens in a culture when there are no longer clear defined rules, when there are no longer so I'll give you an example. For the history of the world, go back as far as you want to. Marriage was basically this. Boy meets girl. Boy and girl fall in love. Boy and girl get married. And we accepted that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But just a few years ago, we're like, well, that's just... That's too concrete, that's too black and white. Maybe there's more to marriage than what we thought this absolute of marriage was. And so we, we changed the rules, we changed, we, we, we changed the ground rules. And what happens, now you're on a slippery slope and crazy stuff is going on. Did you hear about the woman in California that married a train station? Did you hear about that? You can check that out, there's a woman in New Jersey that fell in love with a Ferris wheel and married the Ferris wheel. There's a woman in Great Britain that married a 300-year-old ghost and a woman in Australia who married herself. That's going to be a messy divorce. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But all of a sudden, when everybody's just doing what seems right in their own eyes, you've got chaos, you've got anarchy because... You never know where that's going to end. So it doesn't surprise us that last week there was a man in the news who is 69 years old. That's pretty much an absolute. You've lived so many days, right, of so many hours and so many minutes and so many seconds, right? But he's in court because he feels 49, and he wants to be legally declared by law that he's only 49 because he feels 49. But see, it's a slippery slope. And I've always said strange things grow in a vacuum. So a lot of times people love to say, hey, it's going to get better. It's not going to get better. Because this is what I've learned in life. When you remove absolutes, rarely are they put back in place. So it's gonna continue to be a slippery, slippery, slippery slope. Now here's the good news. The good news is that because of of all of this unrest, because of all of this chaos, because of all of this uncertainty that surrounds us, people are asking more questions than ever. People are looking for answers like never before. And I'm discovering, and maybe it's just because of my job, Often these questions, people come up to me, their questions have to do with the God of the Bible. They're like, who is he? You know? Mike, tell me what he's like. Hey, where is he when I hurt? Let's see, Where is he when really, really bad stuff happens to really, really good people? Mike, this God of the Bible, does he have the credentials? Does he have the resume to manage my life? And so the good news is in Psalm 23, we're going to see over the next few weeks, we're going to get some concrete, no-nonsense answers to some of the deepest and maybe most profound questions that are pulling at people's hearts these days. That's the journey we're taking. That's the journey we're on. Now, let's go back to the very beginning. David, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, actually wrote the Psalm, and all you have to do is read some of the things that he wrote, and you discover immediately that David was a brilliant man. I mean, think about this. He was an accomplished poet. He was a musician. He was a statesman. He was a leader. He was a warrior. In fact, you maybe you didn't know this, but some of David's military strategies are still studied at West Point today. I mean, how cool is that? But I wonder what it was like for David as he got older in years and the twilight of his life as he began to thumb through the scrapbook of his mind. And I wonder what it was like when he thought back to all the triumphs and all the tragedies and all the turmoils that he had experienced in his life. Maybe he remembered what it was like as a young teen to take care of his father's sheep out on some Judean hillside. Maybe he thought about the upset of the universe when God empowered this little shepherd boy, David, to take out Goliath, remember that? Or maybe he thought about when, what it was like when he became an overnight sensation. Because see, when he came back to town, I mean, they threw a ticker tape parade and the people were lining the streets and this is what they were chanting. You can read it yourself. King Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his 10,000. Well, King Saul, insecure King Saul did the math. He thought that's 9,000 off. And he was threatened by David and he began to hate David. And so maybe David thought about what it was like for 14 years to have to run for his life, to hide in the caves of Engedi to keep King Saul from killing him. Maybe he thought about how he took Israel to new heights, economically and spiritually. Maybe, maybe his eyes filled with tears when he thought about the adulterous relationship that he had with Bathsheba that almost ended it all. And maybe on the hills of that, maybe he recalled how his son Absalom hated him so much he wanted to kill his own dad and David had to run from his son. I don't know, I'm just speculating, but maybe it was... As David thought back and remembered one of these snapshots, looking at God's faithfulness, that he sat down in his office in the palace and he wrote Psalm 23 verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack for nothing. See, understand, not only was the David a, a shepherd, he was, he was the son of a shepherd. And so it makes sense because he understands this world that he would refer to God as a shepherd. And I don't think it's accidental, I know it's not, that later on when Jesus came around, he said in John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And as you're going to see this weekend, this idea of this, this concept between the, the, the shepherd and the sheep, it is a constant theme all the way through the Bible. But this, this concept is a little bit foreign to us, most of us have never been around sheep, most of us have never really seen an actual shepherd. But you got to understand, it was one of the most familiar scenes in the Bible. So we have to understand the shepherd-sheep concept if we're going to begin to understand the role that God plays in our lives as the good shepherd. So let's go to Psalm 23, verse 1, if you have your Bibles this weekend. If not, we'll put the verses on the screen. But we learn a couple of things right off the top. Psalm 23, verse 1, David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack for nothing. And so when you think about that verse, look at it this way. The Lord is, that's present, I lack for nothing, that's future. And I think what David wanted to communicate was that we serve a God of the present, but not only is he a God of the present, not only is he taking care of me today, I also serve a God who has my future planned out, who has my future taken care of. I'm telling you, any good shepherd is going to take care of his sheep in the present but he's also gonna think about what's around the corner. You know? Where are we gonna go next? What are we gonna do when we get there? He's thinking about, am I gonna find pastures? Am I gonna find uh, quiet streams and still water? So a good shepherd not only is thinking about the fre- present, he's thinking about the future. And as a result, David says in verse one, I lack for nothing. He's got the present taken care of. He's got the future taken care of. I lack for nothing. The Living Bible says, I have everything I need. It's this the song we sang this weekend. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need, I lack for nothing. Literally, if you were to look at it in the Hebrew, it means this. David basically says this. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. It's a statement of confidence. It's like say, hey, check out my shepherd. Look who my shepherd is. Look who my CEO is. Look who's managing me. See, look who's running the show. I mean, think about it. The God of the universe, he loves us so much that he wants us to be a part of his flock. And he is so invested in our lives, he takes care of us in the present, and he's got our future secure. See, he wants us to be connected to him. He wants to be our shepherd. Now, understand, there's an implication here. And the implication is this. When we become a part of God's family, when we become a part of God's flock, when he becomes our shepherd, we are under obligation to acknowledge, to recognize his ownership in our lives. In fact, let me give you three reasons why I'm under obligation to recognize God's ownership. First of all, understand, I am the object of God's affection. As you sit here this weekend, you may have never thought about it this way, but you are the object of God's affection. God loves you. God loves me. And this is what we know about love. Love has to have an object. You know, you have to love someone. You have to love something. Love doesn't just exist in a vacuum. And each one of us, regardless of your past, regardless of what's going on in your life, you are the object of God's attention. You are the object of his affection, his care. His love. In other words, he wants what's best for us in the present and in the future. Look what Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you, what kind of love? With an everlasting love. Paul picked up on this theme in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. There's that everlasting aspect again to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined, you could use the word chose us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. You need to understand if you get nothing else this weekend, God is head over heels in love with us. He's much more interested in being in a relationship with us than we are in being in a relationship with Him. He created mankind in a relationship with Him. Adam and Eve didn't have to do anything to be in a relationship with God. They didn't have to go to church. They didn't have to say the sinner's prayer. They were already in a relationship. And that's the way it would have been. But man sinned. See, that's the problem. Isaiah talked about it in Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. So even though we know we're the object of God's affection, even though we know that he loves us, the problem is, regardless of how intense that love for us is, we have a tendency to stray. We choose to walk away. As I said last week, I've done a lot of sheep uh, research on sheep to kind of get ready for this, this series. And what you learn is if you study sheep, they're basically stupid animals. I mean, a sheep can wander off of a cliff to its death, and do you know that the rest of the sheep will follow that follow the other sheep right over the cliff. I mean, they would go right to their death. And to and, and be honest with you, we do the same thing. I mean, we have this God who loves us intensely. We're the object of his affection. He's, he's concerned about our present. He's concerned about our future. But instead of just following him and being content in that relationship, what do we do? We stray. We stray. I mean, we watch other people. They go right over the cliff because they're pursuing the wrong things and We go right over the cliff because we decide we're going to pursue the wrong thing. I mean, we got the God of the universe who wants to be in a relationship with us, who wants to guide us and lead us and take care of us. But you know what we do? We're like, man, that's not quite enough because if I could just be wealthy, if I could be wealthy. Now, I think I could find some satisfaction and some happiness and peace there. God's not quite enough. My accomplishments my career, my education. If I could just get to a certain level in my education, I think then I could be content. Then I could be happy. Then I would be at peace. And we forget that when God is our shepherd, we have everything we need. The present is taken care of. The future is taken care of. We lack nothing. We can be satisfied in our relationship with God. We are the object of his affection. Here's the second reason that I'm obliged to recognize God's ownership. It's because, understand, I have been purchased with an incredible price. Isaiah continues the analogy with the sheep, verse, uh, chapter 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, right? The iniquity, our sins, our failings, our shortcomings, the iniquity of us all. Think about it this way. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. You read the Gospel of John, you get to John chapter 1, verse 29. John writes, behold, when he sees, when John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus for the first time uh, off in the distance, he says, behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later on, the same John on the Isle of Patmos, years later, he writes the book of Revelation. When you get to Revelation chapter 5, verse 16, John wrote this, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So Jesus is called the Lamb of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, when he was slain to to use John's word in Revelation, what did he do? He shed his blood. He spilled his blood to pay for our sins. And when he did it, he did it as our substitute. In other words, and it's just a fancy way of saying uh, the, the, the substitutionary work of Christ. That would be the theological term, right? But it means he he died in my place. He died on our behalf. But on our behalf. But what we overlook is the voluntary aspect of what Jesus did for us. But you can't overlook this because this is what makes it so beautiful. You got to understand Jesus wasn't assassinated. He wasn't murdered. He wasn't martyred. He wasn't wasn't set up. He gave himself. In fact, you know what the writer, every writer in the gospel says? It says he yielded up his spirit. He gave his life. It wasn't snatched from him. See, that's the beauty of the shepherd. Remember, he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And when Jesus gave his life, think about this. As Jesus hung on the cross, and this is the part that Jesus was dreading. When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, it wasn't the nails in the hands, it wasn't the crown of thorns, it wasn't the nails through the feet. You know what it was? He knew that in some moment, in some instance, while he was hanging on the cross, he who knew no sin, was going to become sin for us. He knew that in a moment in time, the Father was going to take every sin that had ever been committed, every sin that would ever be committed by every person who ever lived, and he was going to put the weight of that on his son, Jesus Christ. Why in the world would God do that? It's because that's how much he loves us, right? And by putting on Jesus the weight of all of our sins, see, he has given us now the opportunity to become a part of his flock, to be connected in his family. And the minute we get to the place in our life where we say, God, I've been going my own way, I realize I've been doing life without a shepherd. The moment that we acknowledge that, see, and we ask Jesus to be our shepherd, our savior, the moment that we accept and receive what Jesus did for us on the cross. See, at that moment, we are restored back into that relationship with God that we were created for. We're reconciled immediately back into that relationship. But this is what blows my mind. You know, in spite of all of this love, in spite of all of this compassion that God pours out on us, some of you, as you sit here this weekend, I don't get it. You are still living life without a shepherd. He's done everything he can to make it possible but you haven't made that decision. And one of my favorite passages is in, in the Bible is in Matthew chapter nine. And it's just, it's just one of those passages where there's activity everywhere. I mean, it opens up with Jesus healing a man that's paralyzed. And then a little later to top that, there's a dead girl that he brings back to life. And then it says he's going around and he's healing people who've been blind and mute. And he's casting out demons. I mean, it is an incredible scene. But see, it doesn't matter how much Jesus does. It's not enough. I mean, the crowds keep growing. The crowds keep increasing. His name is getting throughout Palestine. Everyone is coming to see Jesus. And it's almost as if Jesus is overwhelmed by the enormity of the needs, the enormity of the situation. And so finally, when you get to Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, and I imagine Jesus looked out and he could see the people coming over the hills, coming over the hills, coming over the hills. And it says, When he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. The Greek word for compassion means that his stomach knotted up. Have you ever felt so horrible for someone in a situation that as you observe them, that you, your stomach just knotted up? His stomach knotted up. Why? Why did his stomach knot up? Because they were harassed. The word in the Greek means whipped. They were whipped. They were helpless. It means they were laid out. And then he uses that beautiful analogy, like a sheep without a shepherd. I'm telling you, in the same way, when we do life shepherdless, the father looks at us and he says, man, they look distressed. They're downcast. They're harassed. They're helpless. They're whipped. They are laid out. And it's because we're not connected to the flock. We're out there trying to do life all by ourselves. We have a shepherd. And if you know anything about sheep, they were designed to have a shepherd. In fact, if you do the study, you'll discover a sheep's not going to last very long trying to do life on his own. He's not going to last very long trying to fight. So the bottom line is a sheep needs a shepherd. And over the past few weeks, man, I, you know, I start these series months and months before we, we, we ever get up here and talk about them. But as I've been working through this series, I have, I have been praying like I have never prayed in my life. Cause God has just laid this on my heart that there's a lot of people walking in the doors of hope every weekend. And you're good people. You're good people. And you're religious people. But I'm not sure you're Christians. I'm not sure that you've ever accepted Jesus as your Savior. That you've never recognized that you need a shepherd. And so I'm just praying that you'll see it. Because the moment that Jesus becomes your shepherd, he's going to lead you. He's going to lead you. And when he leads you, three things happen. First of all, the good shepherd, he directs us. He directs us. uh Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Let me give you a little bit of background to help you understand what it's saying here. If you were a shepherd in Palestine back in biblical times, and you lived in a village. You would get your sheep in the morning. You would go out, and they would graze and on the hillsides, and the Judean hillsides, in the pastureland. And then you would bring them back at night. But when you brought them back at night, you typically didn't take them home. There was a communal pen, and all the shepherd would, shepherds would bring their different flocks, and they would keep them in this one pen at night. And this large communal pen, it was kept by a guardian that was called a doorkeeper, and so. Picture this. At night, back in the village, all of these flocks are mixed up together. All of these sheep are mixed up together. And it was so the shepherd could go home, visit with his family, see his family, catch up on the day's news, get some rest. And then the next morning, he would make his way back to this communal pen, and he would call his sheep. Now, this is what's interesting if you do the study. Each shepherd had their own sound. In fact, I read this week that that a shepherd could cluck its tongue, kind of... And the way they clucked their tongue, the way they could change that in their their throat, the sheep would recognize their shepherd and they would follow their shepherd. But a sheep would never follow a stranger. The sheep had to recognize the voice, had to recognize the right sound. And so think about that. Now Jesus comes along and says, my sheep recognize my voice and they follow me. Now I'm not going to lie to you. I have never, ever heard the audible voice of God. Even if as clear as I was that God 25 years ago told me to leave California and come here to start Hope Community Church, God did not say, go," you know, he didn't, it was nothing like that. Wouldn't that be cool if God spoke to us? Turn here, turn there, get up, go to bed. I mean, wouldn't it be great if God spoke, but he doesn't speak to us that way. But I got to tell you, God speaks to me in my spirit in ways uh, that audible words can't even begin to touch. He speaks sometimes just when I'm reading his word. Sometimes he'll speak to a Christian friend. Sometimes he'll speak to me in my quiet time. Sometimes he'll speak to me through an event or a circumstance. He speaks to me a lot when I'm driving. I don't know why. Most of the time it's to say, hey, don't use language like that. But anyway, he speaks to me while I'm driving. But let me tell you something. If you're being sensitive, and if you're listening, you will hear him. But here's the thing. It's not enough just to hear him. Because it says you you have to follow them. Look what it says, John 10, 27. My my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Several years ago, uh, there was a guy at the church, and this has been a long time ago, so don't try to figure out who it was. And... uh, he came to see me and I knew him pretty well. And I kind of had an idea of what was going on. And I learned a long time ago, most of the time when people set up an appointment with me, they don't come to me to get, what does the Bible say? How should I handle this situation from God's perspective? Most of the time, they want me to approve of whatever they're gonna tell me they're doing, right? So I kind of knew what was going on. And sure enough, he came in and my, my speculation was true. He was having an affair. And now it was to the point that he's getting ready to, to blow his family up, to leave his family. And he's, I said, hey, listen, you know I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. And I talked to him. He already knew that. I wasn't telling him anything he didn't know. But he's like, I kind of already made up my mind. Well, this bothered me so bad. This is a big deal because I've only done this a few times in my ministry. I got a couple of the elders who also knew this person. And I called him. I said, can we come over? He said, sure. We went over to his house. We sat down. We went through the God's word, God's truth again. And again, it wasn't that he didn't know what God's word said. He knew the truth. He just didn't want to follow the truth. He just chose, I'm going to go down a destructive path. And if you were to talk to him today, and this has been years ago, he would tell you that he is still dealing with the brunt of the consequences of that decision. See, he knew, but he didn't follow. I mean, it's great to hear the Word of God. That's certainly part of it, see. But once you hear it, it's important that you follow it and obey it. I mean, it was great that I heard God speak to my spirit and say, hey, go to North Carolina and start a church, but it meant nothing if I didn't do it, if I didn't follow him. Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, probably his most famous sermon, Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter seven. What does he say as he's wrapping it up in conclusion? You will be blessed if you know these things. Mm-mm. If you can memorize these things, no. He says, you will be blessed if you do them. Let me tell you something. God desperately wants to give all of us the direction we need to negotiate life. He wants us to give us the direction we need for those relational problems that we're dealing with, our career choices, our family decisions. The question is simply this. Not are you just hearing him, but when he speaks to you, are you following him? Are you obeying what he says? So as we follow the shepherd, he directs us. Second, and these all rhyme. And that's pretty good for me because I was a PE major. Here's the second one. The good shepherd protects us. Look what it says, John chapter 10, verse nine. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Now understand, back in biblical times, if you were a shepherd, you had your sheep out in the countryside. There weren't any barbed wire fences around. There weren't any corrals. So the shepherd had to come up with a, with a sheepfold. And sometimes they would get rocks and branches and and make a little structure, build a little perimeter. More often than not, they would find a small cave. And if you ever get to go to Israel, you'll see these small caves all over Israel, right? And then the shepherd would sleep in the opening and he would actually become the door. And there was no way that a sheep could get in or get out without him realizing it. There's no way that, that, that a predator could get in without the shepherd knowing it. And then Jesus comes along and says, verse 9, thinking of that analogy, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. In other words, Jesus says, if you get through me into that structure, if you get through me into the sheepfold, you are going to be saved. Now, you hear the word saved a lot, maybe not as much as we used to. Sometimes we get too sophisticated for our only good, for our own good, but you'll hear somebody say, hey, he got saved, or, or she got saved. What does it mean to get saved? Is it like when a lifeguard saves you? You know, what, what? do you save a seat, you know? What does it mean when you are saved? Well, one thing, it does mean you are saved from hell. I told you, I became a Christian when I was five for one reason and one reason alone. I did not wanna to go to hell. And we had an evangelist come to our church. We had revivals in those days, right? And you had to go to church every night for a week, people, it would kill most of you, right? You're not man enough to be a kid the way I was, right? But anyway. I went, and this evangelist, and he told this illustration, and and I'll never forget it, and I've told you before. He said, hell is like a Ferris wheel of flames and fire, and God will strap you on, and you're never going to get off, and it's going to go round and round for all eternity, you know. And and there's weeping and wailing, and he's spitting everywhere. and But then he said this, and the worm dieth not. And that worm freaked me out. I'm not lying to you. That worm, that freaked me out. And I went home that night. I was five years old. I shared a, listen, we were so poor. I had a little twin bed in my mom and dad's bedroom, okay? I went in and sat on the corner of that bed. and I said, mama, I want to get saved. See, I don't want to go to hell. But not only are you saved from hell, it also means that you can be saved from an aimless, wandering, empty, shepherdless life. You can be saved for purpose. You can be saved for meaning and direction. That is a promise from the Bible. Jesus says we can be saved. And the reason we can be saved is because we are under the watchful eye of the good shepherd. He he directs, he protects. Third, the good shepherd inspects us. He inspects us. Look what David said in Psalm 139 verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thought. This is something that I really didn't incorporate into my life until later in life, and I'm embarrassed to say that. But I've gotten to the place every day now when I have my quiet time, and I say, God, search me. Examine me. Check me out. See, a good shepherd's gonna check out his sheep. He's looking for cuts and bruises and injuries. He's looking looking for parasites. See, a good shepherd wants to make sure that his sheep are okay. Laura has a sister that raises these kind of champion dogs and she goes all over the place and, with dog shows. And uh, a few years ago, there was a local one. Well, I, I hate stuff like that. But anyway, you guys, have you picked up on that yet? But anyway, a bunch of smug little spoiled dogs. But anyway, Laura said, we ought to go. We, we ought to be supportive. We ought to go to the dog show. So I went, to a, I went to a dog show. I'm not gonna lie to you. One of the top three worst experiences of my life. Now, let me put it in perspective. Number four was getting both of my knees replaced and getting an infection throughout my whole body that almost killed me. That was not as bad as the dog show. That came in after the dog show, right? And so we go to this dog show, and, uh, and I, I mean, you see movies. They're just weird people. But anyway, what, what really struck out to me is that the dogs were much better groomed than the people. I'm just telling you that right now. I mean, some of these dog groomers, they didn't look like they had been shampooed in a long time, right? But these dogs, I mean, man, they would just stand there, you know, and they were clean, you know, and they're putting moose and gel in their hair, and they're getting out curling irons and blow dryers. I mean, these dogs are taken care of. These dogs are high maintenance and smug. I just wanted to knock the little smugness right off their face. The Lord said, you can't do that, honey, they're expensive. But anyway, then they get them all ready, and this is what they would do. They would just prance around the ring, Right. And the judges would examine them. And then the judge would go up to them and they would examine their teeth and look in their ears. And these dogs, they would, just, they would just stand there at attention. And they would get examined. They would get checked out. This is what I want to say. Just like those dogs, I think we need to get up every morning and say, God, inspect me. Check me out. Examine me. God, how am I doing spiritually? How am I doing psychologically? God, how am I doing emotionally? Is, is there a bruise? Is there a cut? Is there is there a parasite? God, is there some sin in my life that I don't even I don't even see? God, is there some did somebody hurt me? And I'm hanging on to that instead of letting it go. And it's festering. And God, if I don't deal with it, it's gonna it's gonna turn into something worse. God, is that what's going? Hey, God, is there is there a habit in my life that I'm nurturing? That if I don't deal with it, it's going it's to grow up and it's going to eat my lunch. Inspect me. Let me tell you something. If, as we make ourselves available to the Good Shepherd, he inspects us. But here's the cool thing. He points things out. He notices them. And then he cares for us. And he bandages us and he anoints us and he heals our wounds. As we're going to see next week, he, 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 he guides us into great pastures. He takes us to still waters. And this is just a biblical picture of John ten ten, being predicted when Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. See, I let him examine me. He takes care of me so I can experience the life that he designed specifically for me. And now you understand, this is why David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. And because he's my shepherd, I don't need anything. I'm satisfied. I'm secure. Because see, he's taking care of me in the present And he's going to take care of me in the future. So here's the question I want to leave you with this weekend. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Now let me tell you why I use that analogy. It's the analogy that Jesus used. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. This is when Christ comes back to this earth, his second coming, and he judges the whole world. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. By the way, let me just say this. A lot of people say, I don't know that Jesus has come in this second time. Let me it. If you believe he came the first time in Bethlehem, you better believe he's coming the second time, okay? So when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another. Here again, here's the analogy. You can't get away from it. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And if you read the chapter, you'll find out that the sheep represent those who were believers, followers, and they're going to get to spend all eternity in a place called heaven. Incredible. But the goats represent those who never believed. They said the right things, did the right things. Hey, hey, Jesus, we did this for you. We did this for you. We did this for you. But they never followed him. And Jesus said, you're a goat. Depart from me. I never knew you. And they spent all eternity in hell. Now, you got to understand, that's what What's it say? So, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Let me give you a good checklist. Here here are the characteristics of a sheep. See how you measure up. First of all, sheep are sensitive. Sheep are sensitive. John 10 27. My sheep listen to my voice. So, here's my question. When it comes to living and doing life, can you honestly say that you're sensitive to what God is saying? Do you look at life from a biblical perspective? Do you take God's truths, his principles, his precepts into account when you have to make a decision? I mean, if you get an offer to move because you're going to make more money, do you actually stop long enough to think, hey, God, is this the right move? I've seen in America, we assume if it's more money, it must be the right move. Not necessarily. So do you take these things into account? Do you sometimes in relationship where you want to retaliate, you want to get even, you want to be heard, do you sometimes even pause and say, what would Jesus do in this situation? Do you seek his way and not just your own way? If not, it's very possible that you're not a sheep. It's possible that you're you're a goat. In other words, if you're not hearing God's voice describing the path of obedience, it's very, very possible that you have really never become a member of his flock. Second, because sheep are obedient. Sheep are obedient. This really, actually, when I got this report from our marriage ministry, it it really kind of rocked my world. I went home and told Laura, I said, Am I just wasting my time? I mean, I get up there every week. You know, I study. I realize most of you only come to church about once every three weeks, so you, you only get about a third of what I have to say. I mean, the statistics, if they're right. I'm like, Am I just wasting my time? But here's, we had 98 couples over the last year that requested a Hope pastor to perform their wedding. So do the math, that's 196 people. 100% stated that they have a personal relationship with Jesus. 100%. 73 state, 73% stated that they're sexually active. In other words, they're having, it's immorality. That's what the Bible calls it, sex outside of marriage, right? And 40% of those who stated that they were said that they were unwilling to abstain. Like, I'm obedient, and I ain't changing it. 75% said they were currently living together. Of the 75%, 67% said they're unwilling to find different living arrangements before their wedding date. Now understand, we help people do that by giving them free places to live. We have families in our church that'll let somebody live with them free. So it's of no cost economic. It's like, no, I'm just not going to do it. Again, here's my point. Sheep are obedient. See? Goats are disobedient. Jesus says, you want to be great, serve. Do you? I think every person in hope ought to be serving inside the doors of hope, and you ought to be serving outside the doors of hope. Do you serve? Do you serve anywhere? You know? generosity. Do you tithe? The Bible teaches tithing. It says that we should tithe. Are you connecting with other people in biblical community? See, Jesus said, John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. It may very well be your lack of obedience to the things of God. Simply means you're not in his family. See, you've just been saying it for years. Well, I just don't believe that's what the Bible says. Well, I'm telling you, it's what the Bible says. But if you just don't want to obey it, there could be a real problem there, okay? Here's the third one. Sheep are confident and secure. John 10, 27 verse, and 28. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now look what it says. I give eternal life to them. Meaning this, from the moment you receive Jesus as your Savior, you have eternal life. Boom. You have eternal life. Your destiny is set. You don't have to worry about death. You don't have to lay in bed at night and wonder what's next. That's why Paul could say, hey, if I live, great. If I die, I get to go to be with Jesus in heaven. That's even better. I mean, do you have that kind of confidence? I'm telling you, this is what I believe. I believe that the most incredible part of salvation is that as a Christian, you can be confident, you can be secure. We got all these shuttle buses are running around, hope, you know, it's like six flags over, you know, Jesus, you, you can walk out, you can walk out and one of those shuttle buses run you down and your last breath could be, I'm good. I'm good. Because you know, you know when you take your last breath, you know Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But let me tell you something. If you're not sensitive, if you're not obedient to the things of God's word, if you don't have this sense of confidence and security, if you can't say he's my shepherd and I'm in his flock, you got some work to do. But you want to talk about having a Thanksgiving that you'll never forget? That's the Thanksgiving when you know, when you know that you're in. Let's bow together. Have you ever made Jesus your good shepherd? To use the word that Jesus used, have you ever been saved? I'm not talking about, are you a good person? I'm not talking about, are you religious? I'm not talking about, do you go to church? I'm not talking about maybe all the things that you're depending on and relying on to position you to be in the right place with God. Have you ever been saved? Have you ever gotten to the point where you're like, I need saving, I need a shepherd? Have you gotten to the point you realize, if I were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you in, that none of the good things you've done are going to matter? The only answer is that, yeah, your son Jesus died on my behalf, in my place, to pay for my sin. three days later, he rose from the dead, to verify and validate that He was the Son of God who could take away the sins of the world. That's where I'm placing my trust. So you gotta transfer your trust. It's very simple. You transfer your trust from what you've been counting on and what you can do to what God has already done for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. You say, Mike, that's too simple. It has to be simple. It's for everybody, whosoever, whosoever. And I don't do this very often. I want everybody, I want just make sure your eyes are closed at all of our campuses and if you would say, and I'm not going to embarrass you, and I'm not going to talk to you, and I'm not going to call you, but you would say, Mike, this weekend, I'm making Jesus my good shepherd. This weekend, I'm accepting what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, that he is my Savior, and that's what I'm accounting on. Would you just slip your hand up? Because I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, we just thank you. You made it so easy. It's so simple, but some of us, we're we're too smart for our own good. And we think we're maybe smarter and wiser and we've got another angle. Well, if there's another angle, it's not based on the authority of your word. Jesus made it very clear, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me and what I've done. I thank you for those that, t- t- that today, Father, has said, I'm in. I'm in. Jesus, he is my Savior. I'm accepting the gift of salvation that he made possible through his death, his burial, and resurrection. I'm in the sheepfold. I thank you for those. Father, for those that didn't raise their hand, but inside their hand was raised, I thank you for those. <laughs> Father, for those who can't quite get there, or maybe they still think they're okay doing what they're doing, they can be sure. Give us that security and that confidence that we can have in you, in your name. And I would just say, before you leave, I'd encourage you, I would really encourage you, if you came with someone, they'll wait for you. When everyone leaves, just make yourself, make your way down to the front of whatever campus you're at. There are people who would just like to celebrate with you. They'll answer any questions you have. They probably would love just to pray with you. But you know, one of the things that tells us in Romans chapter 10 that is if we believe in our hearts and we profess, if we profess, it's just something about telling the first person, I made the decision that just seems to solidify it in your heart and mind. So I would invite you when I say amen and we dismiss, just come down to the front of any of our campuses and there are people who will just spend a minute or two with you celebrating, praying with you what God has done in your life this week. And Father, thank you. And we give all of these things up in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus.